0: Good morning. Welcome to the gathering of Recreate Church. Before we really get into it, I do have to take care of some very important business. Something very special is happening this week. Our little drummer boy is turning 13. I got a teenage boy in my house. Wednesday's his birthday. Elijah will be 13. I've never had a teenage boy before. I was a teenage boy, and I can't imagine that it was that great to uh, have to put up with me sometimes Elijah's a really great kid though Uh, happy birthday to him and uh, he's thinking right now in his head of all the nice things he wants to do to show me his appreciation for calling him out on his birthday so dad I want to shake your hand dad that's probably what he's saying so dad I'm going to hug you really tight around the neck until you stop moving dad that's what he's got in mind so so he's not a kid anymore turning 13 well kids uh i love having kids i love being around kids they're, they're such a blessing to me i can't believe mine are growing up on me this fast you know kids kids uh for years we had the toy boxes and we had all the legos a million million legos and i haven't stepped on a lego in a while are you really even a dad if you haven't stepped on a lego in a while i don't know it's been a while so um when our girls were little they, they had some dolls, not a lot of them, but a few, a few dolls. Alexis is looking at me like, um. first of all, you called me a girl and you said I play with dolls? Nuh-uh. <laughs> they, for most of human history, kids have play with dolls, right? Okay, when, in the 80s, this was, okay, I'm telling my age. In the 80s, there was this thing called My Buddy, you remember that? It was a, it was a, like, marketed at boys, like, hey, it's cool for you to have a doll. I had one of those My Buddies. Yeah, (laughs) thanks, Billy. (laughs) Hey, everybody needs friends, even if you have to buy one. So we lived out in the country. We didn't see other children to be friends with. I had a little brother, but uh, anyone else ever had a little brother? Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about, you know. Anyway, so yeah. So uh, for generations, for most of human history, kids have played with dolls. And for most of that time, they were handmade of one kind or another, um in these mountains people would make corn shuck dolls you ever seen a corn shuck doll maybe somebody had a corn shuck doll i've seen apple head dolls i'm not sure how those work you like dry an apple and make it into a little face seems like it would go bad at some point i'm not sure how that works and even in recent generations mothers and grandmothers and great grandmothers will make like cloth dolls for for the kids um katie has got a little doll that her which grandma made great grandma made for her that she has that it's like an heirloom thing it's this cute little little doll um I love the handcrafted aspect of all of that okay not really in the dolls not my jam but I appreciate handiwork when I see it uh people stop making things like that on a regular basis when when commercially produced toys became a thing you know Barbie comes along and Barbie's a lot more fun, apparently, and and people quit making so many of the handmade dolls. Of course, the fashion dolls, the factory-made fashion dolls come with, with fashion, right? With all the clothes you can change. They come with all the clothes and all the accessories and all the outfits and all the things that somehow disappear very quickly. Any parent who's ever had a, a girl can tell you of the graveyard of naked Barbies in the bottom of the toy box. I don't know how that happens, but they all end up there and you know, unclothed, you know, and it's, just, it's weird. I don't get it. Um, there is an interesting bit of doll history. You're like, why are they talking about dolls? <laughs> okay, I'm not like weird for dolls. It just works. Hey, it works. It's sermon illustration. Sometimes you have to pay the price for a sermon illustration. And here I am talking about dolls because I love Jesus. How do you get those two things together? I'm not sure, but here we are. Okay, so there's an interesting bit of doll history that bridges that gap between the the purely handmade era and this commercial, commercial, uh, doll era, um, dolls that were not made of cloth or corn shucks or plastic. And this was the era when dolls were made from paper, paper dolls. You, you heard of paper dolls. Um, my grandmother was telling me how they used to cut them out. Rose and Juanita would say they would cut, like cut people out of the catalog and then dress them up, you know? Uh, the paper dolls were made from cardstock or press board, and they would feature a model. that would usually a lady or, a, or a, a kid in a simple outfit. And the doll came with other outfits that you put over top of the, you know, the paper model. You just stacked it up, and you bent the little tabs over, and there you go. You dressed up the doll. Um, they were usually cheap. They came with a lot of options. You could change it in the appearance in seconds. So, paper dolls is not as common anymore. I don't even know if they sell a lot of Barbies these days. I, I don't know if that's still a big thing, um, but people still, you know, little girls and, and even grown ups like still like d- playing dress up. So there's apps for like the tablet and phones where you can choose outfits and stuff. I don't, I don't have any of those. Don't worry about that. I don't have any of those apps, but I know they exist because people who live in my house have or have had them, and I will not name any of them um, where they will dress somebody up. And hey, okay. This is not just, okay, let's just put it fair. In video games, all right? In video games, it's really popular to change the appearance of your character. They're, they call them skins. I know that sounds weird and creepy and serial killer'y skins. But yeah, you could dress up your character and make them change their appearance. So we as human beings, the, the, the medium changes, but the drive to dress something up to match our preferences, that's still there it's there the whole time um we like the idea of remaking something in our image and that even happens with jesus i told you i'd get to the jesus part didn't I? We're, we're not going to talk about dolls all day that's not going to work for me I will, i'll talk about jesus all you want without realizing it millions if not billions of people have have uh, had a like a paper doll concept of jesus Jesus has this flat, two-dimensional character that you can sort of slap something on there. He can be anything you want him to be. You know, he can be the the the, the Jesus that uh, is the Jesus that you have the concept of, that uh, the Jesus that is in line with whatever uh, beliefs that you have. But I'm telling you, Jesus is so much more than this two-dimensional character that we can kind of dress up to fit our concept. He is much more than that. And uh, before we get too too judgy and say, oh well, of course the world doesn't understand Jesus. Please, uh, please get this. His own disciples didn't understand him a lot of the time. The people closest to him had a concept of him that was very two dimensional, very flat. Um, this paper doll concept that he was—he was just this one thing that you could you could sort of add your ideas to—and um, their understanding of him. Did not match up to the truth about his person or his purpose in many ways. So we reached an episode of the gospel of Mark. We are in Mark chapter eight, verses twenty two through 37, uh, 27 through thirty three. And um, we see there's a disconnection between who Jesus really is and who his followers thought he is. He and we're going to be uh, seeing how Jesus is more than just two dimensional, more than somebody we can dress up to match our expectations. But a little bit of Bible lore, okay? I didn't know this. I learned something this week. It was fantastic. Some of these bits that I learned about the city of Caesarea Philippi, where this takes place. Okay. In the Old Testament days, Israel had a big problem with idolatry. You read in the Old Testament, all the prophets are telling them to put away their idols and they're forever going off to follow Baal or Ashtoreth or somebody. And and you ever read the Old Testament? You're like, guys, what are you doing? You got the real true God and you're following these idols. What's up with that? By the time Jesus was born, they had gotten rid of nearly all of the idolatry in the land. There used to be worship, pagan worship sites on every hilltop and in every grove of trees. But that was pretty much gone several hundred years before Jesus came along. The exception was on the slopes of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the place where the the Greeks and the Romans conquered the Holy Land. They started building some pagan shrines again. And they did most of that up in the area of Mount Hermon, which was way in the far north. If you can imagine a map of Israel, and you look in the back of your Bible, you'll see the Sea of Galilee up there. It's like circle-shaped. And up above that is Mount Hermon. They built dozens. The Greeks and Romans built dozens of altars and shrines and small temples on the slopes of Mount Hermon. Mount Herman's the biggest mountain in the promised land. And it is so high that it is snow-capped. You know, we have Mount Rogers just over in Grayson County. Mount Hermon is like, what is Mount Rogers? Six thousand, six thousand six hundred feet, something like that. Mount Rogers is like half again taller than that. Big, big, not Mount Rogers. Mount Hermon is half again taller than that. Great big mountain. And it's snow-capped all the time. And that snow melts. And it percol- percolates down through the limestone. And it comes out and that forms the headwaters of the Jordan River it gets its start from the snow melt on the mountain in Jesus's day the water the stream came out of a cave in the side of the mountain doesn't that sound cool like a stream coming out of a cave and that just sounds fitting for the for the Jordan River to come out in such a cool way it would come out of this cave big big cave and and flow down the mountain there was an earthquake and the flow has been diverted a little bit and it no longer comes out of that cave. It comes lower down near this big, beautiful waterfall. Waterfall. So in the Gospels, this place was called Caesarea Philippi. That's a neat name. It's kind of a mouthful. Caesarea Philippi. In the land of Israel at that time, and, and to this day, it has another name, a name that the locals call it. And if you look it up uh, on Google, this is what you'll find. It's called Banias b-a-n-i-a-s banias it's called that because the local people had a hard time pronouncing the name the greeks gave to it when they built it Panias, Panias. i guess they couldn't pronounce the b's and and p's it was named because of the shrine they built there to the to the greco-roman deity of the wilderness the mischievous fellow who danced with nymphs and played that pipe with all the reeds together. Everybody's favorite goat-legged imaginary god, Pan. You remember that guy? I don't have a picture of him. I kind of don't want to really glorify Pan today. Um, but there was a temple to Pan. And people built little altars inside of that cave where the stream was. So you would kind of walk into this cave where the stream is coming out. And there's all these little altars to Pan. There was a temple to Pan there. Do yourself a favor. Don't Google Pan. I'm telling you, even as far as pagan gods go, he was a nasty dude. And the people, for real, just don't. Do yourself a favor. Stay, off of, stay away from Pan. And the people who worship Pan there were into some super sketchy, sketchy stuff. Do not Google it. And some of you are like, well, if he doesn't want me to Google it, I'm definitely going to Google it then. I understand that. I get that. Just don't do it this time. There's nothing good to be learned. He was a super creepy dude. So the 12 disciples must have been a little concerned. It's like, oh, Jesus, we're going up to Caesarea Philippi. Do you know what's up in Caesarea Philippi? What am I saying? Of course you know what's up in Caesarea Philippi, but why are we going to Caesarea Philippi? Why are we going to go up to the place where they worship false gods? Why would we do that? It's like the only place in Israel where they're still worshiping false gods at this time. Pretty much all the idolatry was, was gone everywhere else. So why are we going there? It runs very counter, doesn't it, to the, to the idea that I very often heard that believers should just be away from the world, separate from the world. Now, there's some truth to that. We should not join into the sins of the world. But should we hide from the world? Should we not interact with the world at all? Let me tell you, though, the idea of living out in the middle of nowhere and not having to deal with the evil of the world or the corruption in society or, frankly, a lot of people, that sounds pretty good. That's why some of y'all moved here, right? Because God bless y'all, some of us grew up here, some of us got here as quick as we could. And for some of you, the very reason was That you wanted to live in a place where you're a little bit insulated from the world. I get that. Uh, You know, I walked out in my yard this morning um, trying to get a dog to do what a dog needs to do in the morning. And he was just taking lots and lots of time. So I had some praying time. So, Lord, I'm glad I live in a place where it's beautiful. You know, where I hear birds and the loudest noises that I hear. Cows eating grass. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I just kind of stay right there in that spot all the time except this. Jesus told us to be the light of the world. How can we be the light of the world if we never interact with the world? You don't defeat the darkness by pretending the darkness doesn't exist. We overcome darkness with light. That's all, that's all it is. Darkness is just the absence of light, isn't it? You walk into a dark room. You flip the switch to turn the lights on. Does darkness even put up a fight? It's just gone. It's over with. You understand as much as we would like to not have to deal with the world, we can't really hide from the world. You are the light of the world. When you walk in a dark room, that room gets brighter. You light up the room. There you go. There's this to say, it. Billy, you know it. You light up the room, Billy. Woo! Woo! <laughs> Billy Honeycutt is not the only one who lights up a room. Anybody who's carrying with them the spirit of the Lord lights up a dark place. So do not join in the evil of the world, but be the light of the world, lighting up that darkness with the truth and the love of God. So this little field trip up into a very dark place, Jesus and the disciples were taking the light there. I feel certain that they did not go into the temple of Pan and say, you know, I've been wanting to try out some paganism. I don't think they did that. We don't know for sure that they went close to there, but it had to be on their minds, right? The disciples have to realize, why are we going to a place like this? They they must be thinking about some big things here. Um, they would have met people on the roads who were going up to worship this pagan deity. They would have... Um, probably seen businesses in the area that were catering to the worship of this pagan deity. There was no ignoring the idolatry of the area this is fascinating to me because i didn 't know this was a thing i didn 't know there was like this pagan altar in Israel like this at this time, but there there was. It had to have been weighing on these disciples and in in an area full of false worship, Jesus asked them a question about his own identity. Very interesting. Now let's go to the scriptures, Mark 8, uh, 27 through 33. We'll read that and we'll pray. Now Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns, out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Again, that's right up at the base of Mount Hermon. And on the road, he asked his disciples saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah. Others say, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter, Peter, answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. I pray that you will open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to what you would have us to say, that we'll see something about the true identity of Jesus and the depth of who he is in Jesus name. Amen. Who do people say that I am? Jesus asked. That was the hot topic of the day. You thought Hot Topic was just a weird store. The Hot Topic of the day, who is Jesus? And everyone seemed to have an opinion and the disciples repeated some of the most popular opinions. They said, well, some people think you're John the Baptist who's maybe come back from the dead. Some people think you're the great prophet Elijah. Some people think you're one of the other prophets. Now, to be compared to these incredible men on this list would be a great compliment to anybody except Jesus. He's on a different level. It would be like telling someone, wow, you're as good at basketball as LeBron James, only to find out that the person you're talking to is Michael Jordan. Hey, Nothing but love for LeBron. He's a good baller. But he is not the GOAT, the greatest of all time. That would be Air Jordan. Air Jordan. Michael Jordan. Larry Bird. You know what? Larry's up there. We love Larry. Larry's fantastic. But I think uh, Michael Jordan's got to take the crown. See, I didn't know it was going to be controversial today. I thought I'd have some some LeBron fans in here saying, hmm. It's LeBron. No, it's not. It's Jordan. See, Jesus, was he a prophet? Yes, but more. Was he a preacher? Yes, but much more. Was he a leader? Yes, but so much more. The evidence through all the gospel is there through all the gospels. The evidence is right here in this room today in transformed lives. Still to this very day, Jesus is is changing The very essence of who people are in a positive way. Many people in this room can testify. You're not who you used to be because of what Jesus has done in your life. It's still happening. That doesn't happen. Look, the prophet Elijah, cool guy, but he's not transforming lives in 2023. Jesus is. John the Baptist, amazing. But he's not on the level with Jesus. Jesus is all alone. Now. Jesus wants to give the disciples a chance to show that they understand a little better than the people do. I mean, it's not surprising that the the general population does not understand truly who Jesus is. But what about the disciples? So Jesus turns to them and asks, okay, we've heard what, what people say. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, he's often the spokesman for the group. He speaks up and he says, you are the Christ simple but profound you are the christ matthew's record of this same event gives us a little more information on what was said so matthew chapter 16 verses 15 through 17 jesus this is a parallel account by the way just as a reminder the four gospels matthew mark luke and john tell the same story of jesus from different angles different camera angles so it's not like matthew's volume one mark's volume two no it's it's a lot of the same So we get a little different perspective here. So Matthew writes down a bit of things that Mark did not. It goes like this. And he, Jesus, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. So Jesus confirms Simon Peter's answer. Jesus is not just a prophet, not just a great teacher, not just a miracle worker. He is the son of God, not a two dimensional flat character, not somebody that we can just tape a new outfit on. He has depth beyond depth. And he goes on to tell Peter that Peter would have a special role in what was coming, the kingdom that was coming. And uh, don't you know, Peter probably stood a little taller right then. I mean, who doesn't like the idea that you're going to be a part of something bigger and wonderful. Jesus ends the line of conversation in a in a very interesting way. If you'll go back to the last verse, uh, verse um, thirty, Mark eight thirty, he strictly warned them that they should tell no one. Did you ever notice that how often Jesus says in the Bible, "Say hey, he don't tell anybody." I begin to see maybe some of the reason for that. Jesus knew if they. The more they told people, the more that uh, his enemies would be ready to come get him. And that's a problem. The more attention he drew to himself at this particular time, the more his enemies would uh, chase him down and find him and capture him. And they were going to capture him and kill him. And he knew it wasn't time yet. It was not time yet for his ministry to come to an end. So that he's like, hey, keep it on the keep it on the download just for now. Must have been hard for the disciples to say quiet. How would you like it if you got to hang out with Jesus and some of the things he did and said you didn't get to tell anybody at first. That would be rough. Especially when the people had been waiting for the arrival of the Christ for generations. Let's talk about that word Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's not his last name. And his middle initial is not H. I'm not even sure where that came from. I have no idea. Christ is a title. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, and it means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, people and things would be anointed to set them apart for God's service. They would take like a little dab of uh, scented, perfumed olive oil, and they would, they would put it on the thing. Uh, they would put it on the person. And that showed that they were chosen for something. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed. The altar and all the implements in the temple of the Lord were anointed. It showed that this person or this object was chosen by God. Throughout the Old Testament, there are many prophecies about this one who was coming who would be so anointed, so chosen for such a big thing that he was called the anointed one, the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. And that's where we get Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah messiah he was the savior sent from god who would deliver god's people so in the centuries leading up to the birth of jesus the people of god suffered very terribly under the greeks and under the romans and they were so sick of being pushed around that they they started to fight back they started uh, a revolt several revolts and they won a few victories against the greeks you ever heard of the the jewish holiday of hanukkah that's tied to one of these times that the jewish people fought back against the greeks now later on against the romans they didn't have as good a success against the romans it's really hard to fight back against the romans they would crush you so quickly but the jewish people thought that when the messiah came they knew he was supposed to bring freedom so Their understanding was that the Messiah would be a great military leader, a great political leader, that he would lead the revolt against Rome and get their freedom back and free the country. That was the picture that most people had of the Christ, the Messiah, including Simon Peter and the other disciples. So we often see them in the gospel saying, Lord, when when are you going to bring the kingdom in? When are you going to establish the kingdom? And what they had in mind was something more like an earthly kingdom they had in mind. That he would declare himself to be the king and lead them in a military revolt and get the political freedom for the nation. They imagined, of course, that when this happened, they would be set up pretty good. They they would be appointed as his most important advisors and generals and prime ministers and officials. That is how they pictured Jesus. On the, the paper doll version of Jesus, they would sort of take the little tabs and they would put like a royal crown on him for an earthly king and they would put some military robes on him that's how they pictured him they dressed jesus up as a conquering king that was their concept their two-dimensional concept of jesus he's the guy who is going to free our nation except jesus is so much more than they imagined The freedom that he was bringing wasn't going to be mere political freedom. As much as we want that, there are greater things than political freedom. He was going to bring freedom to their hearts and souls and minds first. Jesus explained what it was going to be like. This is in verse 31. You'll have to find that on down there, Janiah. And it it bothered Peter. You're going to see here. Jesus began to teach them, this is verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Ooh, that's heavy, 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 heavy. Jesus described the opposite of their expectations. Instead of being embraced as king, Jesus said the leaders of the people would reject him and conspire to have him killed and indeed have him killed. This one that the disciples had put all their hope in would be tortured and murdered and whatever dreams they had about military or political victory would not come true, at least not at that time. And they would not be made royal advisors and generals and prime ministers and officials. The only earthly crown Jesus would receive was a crown of thorns. That is heavy. So much about this is a little strange and a little confusing. If Jesus is supposed to be the anointed one, If he's supposed to be the savior, how does that work? If he's going to die, Peter was upset. How could how could Jesus speak so openly and calmly about being killed? How could Jesus set up a kingdom? If he would soon be dead. It was too much for Peter. He's an emotional guy. You see this through the Gospels. He gets really emotional here and he pulls Jesus to the side of the road and the scriptures say that he begins to rebuke Jesus, which means we would say begins to chew him out. We don't know exactly what he said, but he probably said, what what are you talking about, Jesus? Why are you talking like this? You can't be talking about dying. Everybody's counting on you. How's this going to work if you're dead? I, I won't let this happen. I'll stop this. I cannot allow this to happen. Why is Peter talking like this? He cares about Jesus. He loves Jesus. He cares about the cause. And he's sure that this whole mission to free Israel will fall apart if Jesus dies. Not to mention his own hopes and dreams of being a great royal official. That would go away if Jesus dies so far as he understands. Wasn't Peter the fellow who just made the great profession of faith. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus confirmed, said, hey, God, put those words in your mouth. This understanding did not come from within you. God gave you that understanding. But now here he's showing his understanding of Jesus is is kind of flat. It's kind of two dimensional. It's this paper doll understanding of Jesus. He wants to dress up Jesus in a certain outfit, this one and only outfit, as a conquering king. What Peter does not have is a concept of the cross. So Jesus turns around. He rebukes Peter. And it's tough. He doesn't get any more pointed than this. He looks at Peter and says, Get behind me. What's the word? Satan? Jesus calls Peter... Satan, oh, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's plans. You're thinking about your own plans. Is Peter Satan? No, but without realizing it, he's trying to make the devil's argument here. The devil has been tempting Jesus from the beginning to abandon his purpose. Remember when when the devil um, met Jesus in the wilderness and tempted him with all of these things, if he would just abandon his purpose, if he would just... Not carry out the plan of redemption, the devil promised him all these big things. The devil's been trying to do this the whole time. And here Peter is saying, No, no, you can't go through with this. And that's what the devil wants. So he's taking the devil's side without truly realizing it. For Jesus to run from the cross would be to run from his purpose. Peter doesn't know what he's saying, he misunderstands the purpose of Jesus. To be fair, it's kind of counterintuitive, this idea that life comes through death. But without the crucifixion, there's no resurrection, right? And without the resurrection, what are we even doing? There's no point of anything. There is no hope for life beyond death if there's no resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the pivot point of all history because death could not hold Jesus It can't hold you either if you'll trust in Jesus. Peter couldn't see the big picture. He couldn't see that suffering and death, the suffering and death that awaited Jesus didn't destroy God's plan. It fulfilled God's plan. You can understand why he's he's upset. If, If you expect Jesus to be a military or political champion, the cross sounds like defeat, doesn't it? It would make sense to oppose the cross, especially if you're expecting to get some gain out of it. But that's not what this is about. Jesus did not come to be this military political champion. He isn't just a 2D hero. He's this three-dimensional being. If Three could even capture it. I'm, toss that up there, would you, Janiah? Jesus is, is three-dimensional, not two-dimensional. And Here's three of Jesus' Messiah. He's the anointed one from God. Jesus is Savior. And Jesus is, what's that last word? This is serious. This is a big deal. This is why most religions in the world are okay talking about God. And most of the world is okay when you talk about God. But when you start talking about Jesus, there's a problem. Because of this last claim here, Jesus is God. That's big. That's not small. Jesus is God. God. And in his suffering and in his death and his resurrection, he proved all three. Someone's going to say, what about the kingdom? Isn't there going to be a kingdom Were the apostles wrong to believe Jesus would set up a kingdom? Were all the people wrong to believe in the kingdom of God? No, they weren't wrong. They just didn't understand the timing. Jesus came first as a suffering savior to free people from their sin. He has set up a kingdom. Where is that kingdom? Right here, The kingdom of God is within us, but within every believer, the kingdom of God is within us if you're a believer. But is that the end of the story? No, it is not, because he is going to return. this is the real return of the king. The king will return this time, not as a suffering savior, but as a conquering king. And he's going to deal with the devil and he's going to set all things right and free everyone from oppression and set up his kingdom on earth. Then he will be both king of our souls and king of the world. Jesus is so much more than Peter could understand. And in truth, he's more than we can understand. We have an advantage that Peter didn't have. At this time, he didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit in him, and he did not have the completed Bible like we have. We get a much better idea of who Jesus is because of our perspective of history and because of what the resources we have. Jesus isn't a two-dimensional figure that we can dress up how we want. He's the linchpin of history. He's the king of the universe. He is Messiah. He is Savior. He is God, and you need to understand him as all three of those things. Now, in our culture, in our society, We do not tend to dress Jesus up as a military or political leader. We tend to dress up Jesus as one specific thing. Say, oh, Jesus, he was that guy who went around being nice and telling everyone to be nice. Someone who just tells us to love everybody, who does not hold us accountable, who does not expect anything of us. That is a two-dimensional picture of Jesus as well. Jesus does teach us to be kind, to love others. But he also holds us accountable, seriously accountable. That if you are a, you say you're a believer, you say you believe in Jesus, you are held accountable to live for Jesus and let his light shine through you. That's a big deal. Even as a true believer, you can have a very shallow understanding of who Jesus is. And my challenge to you this week is get to know more about this man, Jesus. If you say you follow Jesus, man, get in the word and get to know him. We've been in the gospel of Mark for Thirty one or two Sundays. Isn't that wild? It's been a long time that we've been in it. It's amazing and we're halfway through, so move real fast. There's just so much good here. Get to know this Jesus. We're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. We we can't understand him in two dimensions or three or anything else. He's limitless. Lord, God Almighty, please help us to get a better appreciation of who jesus is lord please forgive us for the times when we we place our own concept upon jesus may we get to know him truly through your word in jesus name i pray amen and amen folks thank you for being a part of this today i hope you have a wonderful day god bless you we'll catch you next time